0: Welcome to Champion Church of the Nazarene's weekly sermon podcast. This week as we continue our series, What About, We Wonder, What About Sexuality? We begin the conversation with how God created us as sexual beings and the healthy ways to express that reality. And then we will explore answers to questions on how we might live faithfully to God in our lives. Today, uh, we are continuing our series our teaching series, a series that is based upon questions and answers, sort of a conversation called What About? And over the past few weeks, we have been looking at different things within our world that you begin to wonder, what does God think about these things? How does God want us to live with these things? How does God uh, call us to be in the presence of of these things and and I think the one thing is the past two weeks we talked about spooky season and we talked about science last week and a lot of this stuff is it involves people but in, in a lot of ways you could call these things subjects today is different today we're asking the question what about sexuality and this affects us deeply because more than likely You have somebody that you know who has maybe a different way of life or a different perspective on their sexuality than maybe what we read in Scripture. The identities that we receive when it comes to sexuality is very varied. But because they are very varied, I think it's important to recognize something. This isn't a topic. This is something that affects people very deep in their hearts, in their minds, in their bodies. And so as we have this conversation, let's not just think of this as a topic. We are talking at the end of the day about lives and people and too often in the church, this conversation actually has started around what not to do. <laughs> the conversation around sexuality in the church has very always been, don't do this. And almost, it's almost like you get this impression that the church is afraid to talk about sex. When in reality, God, who created us, who create us to be human beings, who created us in His image, gave us sex. <laughs> so we need to start from a perspective, not from what is bad about sex, or that sex is even bad, but rather, how did God intend for it to be? Why did He give us these Feelings, these desires, this sexuality. And so we are, just like I shared with you last week regarding Bi- the Bible and, and this week in the midweek, the Bible is authoritative in understanding who God is and who he created us to be and how he saves us. And so we're going to start this conversation by looking at how God intended our sexuality to be. Before we get to any questions, because guess what? All the questions were about specifics and what can you do and what can't you do. I remember growing up in church and being like a 14, 15, 16 year old. And, you know, it was very, very confusing and (laughs) you're driven by a lot of feelings (laughs) whenever you're young. And I always remember, we would always ask questions of, where's the line? Where's the, what can I do? What can I do with my sexuality? And things like that. And again, it doesn't start in that frame of mind. It starts with how God created us to be. And so, we're going to go back to the creation account, both of them today, to sort of begin to understand how God created us, how, what kind of people we are. In Genesis chapter 1, beginning with verse 27, we receive this very, very simple picture of how God created humanity to be. God created humanity in God's own image. In the divine image, God created them. Male and female, God created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fertile and multiply. Fill the earth and master it. Take charge of the fish and of the sea, the birds of the sky, and everything crawling on the ground. Then he'll continue to talk about plants and things. But at the very end of this account, it says, he looked at it, and he said, It's very good. It's really good. Why was it so good? Because quite frankly, as God created all the different kinds of creatures, he recognized that the human that he created was deeply relational, like God himself. Do you hear that, everybody? Every single human being, male and female, we call God he because, quite frankly, our scriptures are in a patriarchal society. But the reality is is that females came from God too. (laughs) God is bigger than just one that we see him as. So every single one of us is created in his image. Every single one of us is created to be relational like God is. Do you you see where I'm getting at here, friends? God created humans to be like God. And in that, he gave us a wonderful expression of relationship. A wonderful expression of relationship known as sexuality. But the thing of it is, is we often talk about sexuality only in terms of what we do with our bodies. Think about that for a second. The sexual revolution of the 1960s came about because contraception allowed us to do what we wanted with our bodies without necessarily bringing children into the world. And from there, we began to develop a philosophy of I can do with my body as I desire. But what we see here is that Humans are incredibly relational. And our physical affects our mental. And our mental affects our emotional. And our emotional affects our spiritual. And affects our physical. Everything is connected. Everything is connected about us. What you do with your body will affect you spiritually and mentally and emotionally. What you do mentally will affect your physical. And Do you know where I'm going here? And what we've learned is that the very acts of sexuality, in the scientific community, we have learned that when you are physical sexually, it releases hormones. It affects your brain. It affects your emotion. It affects who you are. We begin to see this a little bit. There is more to sex than just the act. And so we need to reclaim an understand of sexuality that's not just about our bodies. It's about us as humans. And what I love about this is that our church recently, in about, about six years ago, brought forth a statement about human sexuality that was far more, well, comprehensive. Because it used to just be about, don't do this, do this. It now starts with this. The Church of the Nazarene views human sexuality as one expression of the holiness and beauty that God the Creator intended. Because all humans are beings created in the image of God. They are of an inestimable value and worth. As a result, we believe that human sexuality is meant to include more than the sensual experience. Sexuality is a gift of God designed to reflect the whole of our physical and relational createdness. Before we move any further, within that, friends, we need to recognize that sexuality is how we look to connect how we look to connect with God, how we look to connect with each other, how we look to connect with someone else. And if that's the case, then we need to consult the Creator about that gift. We need to recognize how God designed it to be. Just like he designed the creation to be stewarded by humans, creation's a gift. I want you to think about this for a second. God gives us all of these things and he has a design and a structure for the ways that we live our lives. It's not just about sexuality. It's about how we care for creation. It's how we relate to each other in love. It's how we don't steal from each other and how we don't do these things. These are real important ways of life. And so in the second creation account in Genesis chapter 2, we get a larger sense of that relational, that relationship that God designed our sexuality to be expressed in healthily. Genesis chapter 2, beginning with verse 22, reads this. With the rib." Taken from the human, the Lord God fashioned a woman and brought her to the human being. <clears throat> the human said, this one finally is bone of my bones and flesh from my flesh. She will be called woman because a man, because from a man she was taken. And this is the reason that a man leaves his father and mother and embraces his wife and they become one flesh. The two of them were naked, the man and his wife, but they were not Embarrass. In this second creation account, a lot of us, you you might have, if you've ever been in the church before, you'll think, oh, one flesh, that means sex. Actually, no, it means kinship. It means that the design of male and female in marriage was designed to be the place for the most intimate of relationships the most intimate of connections the most intimate of life and marriage by the way all 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 the jewish scholars of the old testament all christian scholars see that the man and the woman in the creation account were indeed married It's always been that way. Because sexuality is such a connecting and bonding practice, because it is a way of really fully seeing someone, being with someone, touching somebody, loving somebody, it is to be in a relationship that is permanent, that is selfless, that is loving, that is good. And so we as a church hold on that sex is to be expressed in marriage. The sacred rite of marriage. We read this in the manual. As defined in Genesis... I think I've got this one right as defined in Genesis a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh the marriage covenant a reflection of the covenant between God and the people of God is one of exclusive sexual fidelity unselfish service and social witness do you hear that The marriage covenant is a reflection of the covenant between God and his people. It's one of exclusive sexual fidelity, unselfish service, and social witness. God gave us sex. God gave us marriage. And that is the way that we are to express sex. The struggle that we have, though, is the idea that it's my life and it's my body and I want to do what I want with my body. We struggle, I think, a lot in our day and age to receive God's direction about this because sexual desire is experienced by every single one of us. In some kind of way. And it seems like if we say no to ourselves, then we won't live the life that we deserve or we we need to. We, we, we deserve or, yeah, what we deserve, yeah. But what that is, is that saying, God, I trust you whenever you tell me not to do this, but I don't trust you about this particular part of my life. And as you go throughout Scripture, it's not just an Old Testament thing. Jesus, a number of times, comes into contact with people who are in, who are doing things with sex that they are, that's not as seen as what God uh, designed it to be, or he's been asked about it. Like, for example, a woman is caught in adultery and they bring her in front of Jesus and Jesus they're saying hey we got a stoner which by the way a lot of times in scripture just so you know men did a lot of things sexually and they were very free about it but women were held to a different standard that is a misuse of god's scriptures by the way but in any case i digress but as jesus says let he or she without sin be the one to cast the first stone. Everybody came to the realization that every single person had sinned in that crowd. And everybody leaves. And the woman is just completely surprised, and she's like, standing there right there in front of Jesus. and She asks, aren't you going to judge me? No. But then he says this, go and leave your life of sin. What Jesus shows in this moment is that there is intense and amazing grace for every single person who has sinned, whether it be sexually or any other sin. He loves you no matter what you have done with your body, with somebody else, in any other way. But, He wants and has shown that it is designed to be experienced in the way that God intended it to be. How God has revealed His teachings about sex is found throughout the law, in Jesus, and in those who came after Jesus. There are plenty of stories, though. There are plenty of people in Scripture that do not follow this. That we hold up in the church, by the way, as heroes of the faith. Abraham was married to his wife. She wouldn't get pregnant, so he slept with her servant. (laughs) David... A man after God's own heart sexually assaulted Bathsheba because he was the king and said, no, you're going to sleep with me. And then he kills her husband. There are plenty of moments throughout Scripture where the people who are in a relationship with God do not live into the design of what sex is called to be. And yet God is graceful and forgiving. He doesn't smite them. And as Jesus shows us, we do not stand condemned, but we are called forward into what God designed us to be sexually. And that's when, really, the questions come in. What do we do about... The fact of the matter is is that many of us have expressed sexuality in a way that God didn't intend it to be. What do we do about people, or how do we relate with people who are attracted to people differently than how God has said in Scripture? What do we do about sexuality in this world that we live in? And so we have two questions before us today. One that has less to do with sex, but uh, the reality of it is is that uh, sex or a a wrong way of of relating to each other in sex causes this. Should Christians get divorced? And then the second one is, are LGBTQ identities genetic or are the origins something different? So let's start with divorce. Real fast. Because divorce happens a lot. We believe what Jesus says about... Well, actually, before we go to Jesus, let's, let's, let's bring up the manual perspective here for a second. We've shared that marriage is intended to be lifelong, exclusive, service of each other, sacrificial, all these things. We as a church believe that marriage is intended to be a lifelong commitment. The fracturing of the covenant of marriage, whether initiated personally or by a choice of the spouse, falls short of God's best intentions. We need to read that very carefully. Choice of a spouse, or initiated by choice. Because Jesus is asked at one point, hey, Can we get divorced? The historical context of divorce in the Bible is different than the divorces that we have today. Divorce was created within Judaism because men would just do what they wanted. And so within the law of Moses, there was the provision of divorce that if a man were to leave a woman, leave that marriage there would be divorce so that that woman would be provided for because women could not be provided for because they didn't have, have they were not seen as equals even though God always intended male and female to be equal and mutual in marriage so when they come and ask Jesus about this hey can we get divorced hey you know what you're asking right now you're being ridiculous you're just wanting to you know Enjoy the power that you have as a man. And this is what Jesus says to the people who ask him about divorce. I say to you that whoever divorces his wife, again, it's about guys, except for sexual unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery. Essentially, he was saying that if you are going to leave a woman and even get divorced because you saw another woman, you are doing something. You are leaving the covenant that you made with your wife to begin with. You are seeking outside of your marriage for your sexual appetite. In this world, unfaithfulness isn't just sexual actions with another person. I am thankful that we we have correctly begun to see marriage as a mutual relationship. Far more than it used to be. And quite frankly, too often, some churches and some beliefs still impose some type of hierarchy, which is not biblical, which is not correct at all. But the reality of it is is that divorce is something that is to be only sought when there are cases of infidelity, as Jesus exclusively says there, but also when somebody, when the spouse chooses to elevate themselves over the other spouse, that they become abusive. And also when a spouse chooses abuse of a substance or thing over their spouse. Abuse, addiction, and infidelity are places and circumstances where divorce is acceptable? I don't know the word you're looking for there. But I think there's something here that's really, really important to recognize. Marriage is hard work. And an argument does not mean that you're abused. Abuse is when somebody lords over you, manipulates, tries to to bribe you with, or bribe you with physical violence, or sexual violence, or even verbal violence. In those cases of abuse, it is important for the person who is the victim to be separated from the abuser. And yes, if the abuser is willing to change, maybe. But there is a lot of submission that has to happen by the abuser, There's a lot of submission that has to happen to God, to therapy, to the spouse. So let me tell you something. If you are being abused in your marriage, tell somebody, move into a safer space because you should not be living in a covenant relationship that's designed to be mutual as a place of abuse. In the same way, addictive substances like alcohol, drugs, and yeah, even porn, there's plenty of things that you can be addicted to. When spouses choose those things over their spouse, that's, that's a problem. Again, there's therapy that's needed. There is a lot of change that has to happen. And then infidelity as well. But I'm here to tell you something that's really good, because again, you get sort of stuck in all of this, yeah, the the questions about fallen life and how we sin against each other. And we forget that picture of what marriage can be. Marriage is just like the relationship between God and His people. God is incredibly faithful no matter what and is very forgiving and moves forward. Marriage can be a beautiful thing, but it requires submission to God and submission to each other. And so, I love this quote by, uh, I can't say her last name, Nina. Nina Hendricks, yeah, you got it up there. Uh, Only in submission to Christ, as the head of the church and in sacrificial submission to each other, modeled by Jesus in his love and death for the church, can spouses aspire to have one-flesh marriages. That's why we say that marriage is a covenant not just between two people, between two people and God. And marriage can be wonderful and beautiful. And the act of sex within marriage is really a beautiful thing. Because alongside of that is a commitment. Alongside of that is emotional and mental support. Alongside that is service and generosity in relationship to each other. It's a beautiful thing. The next question was regarding sexual identities outside of how marriage is defined by God in Scripture. And the question is actually about the origins of LGBTQ identities. And I'm here to share something with you. I'm going to briefly touch on that, but I think it's really important that we begin to have a better understanding a better perspective on our LGBTQ friends and family members, and quite frankly, brothers and sisters in Christ. And you might think to yourself, where is he going with that? We're going to get there. But the question is about the origins. Is it something that a person is born with? Is it genetic? And I can tell you that within science, there are a number of studies that are happening as to determine how exactly does somebody... Become attracted to same sex or both sex or other ways? How does this happen? I don't know if answering the how exactly helps the conversation, but I think if you think back to last week's conversation about science, is that there are moments that science observes the world as we have been given it. And so as science looks into genetics, as science looks into environments, as science looks into trauma and how it informs our sexualities, we shouldn't be surprised that all three of those things can be affected by the fall. We shouldn't be surprised by that. That does not mean that somebody who is homosexual was traumatized. That does not mean that they had a certain kind of upbringing. That doesn't mean, I don't, it really doesn't, we don't know. But what we do know is that there are people who do not fit into how Scripture tells us to live. They have attractions, they have a desire to be sexual in ways outside of male and female marriage. What do you do about that? And quite frankly, Growing up in an evangelical church, too often people pastors just dismiss this with a single verse in Leviticus. And they call people people, they call people abominations. And I cannot tell you how misguided and how unchristlike that is. Because we receive in creation that every single person has value and created in the image of God. And to call somebody an abomination is to dehumanize somebody to make yourself feel more comfortable. Because they're attracted to somebody that you're not attracted to. That misread, that misinterpretation basically casts it on the identity of people who are LGBTQ when the Bible explicitly only talks about sexual action. The Bible only talks about sexual action. Not desire, not orientation, not attraction. It does not talk about that. And the reality of it is if If you call somebody who's attracted to the same sex or both sex or something else an abomination, what you're doing is, then any kind of desire that you have can be seen also as an abomination. Hey, I'm a straight dude. I think that woman's attractive. You're an abomination. We don't do that, do we? We don't do that to a person who likes materials and maybe predisposed to money and greed and say, oh, oh man, I really, really want this and I really want the best of this. We don't throw them out of our churches and our homes, do we? What we have done in this conversation is we have called what is not a sin, a sin. Because quite frankly, somebody being attracted to the same sex or both sexes or something... Other than that, bugs us. It makes us uncomfortable. And this is, again, why I am so thankful. Why I am so thankful that our manual, our belief system, has recently changed to recognize that. I'm gonna, I don't have a, a slide for this, but I just want you to hear this, friends. I can find it in my notes. They begin to talk about what we refrain from. Unmarried sexual intercourse, which was what we talked about. Other forms of inappropriate sexual bonding. Sexual activity between people of the same sex. And within this, it says this. While a person's homosexual or bisexual attraction may have complex and differing origins and the implication of this call to sexual purity is costly, we believe that the grace of God is sufficient for such a calling, and we recognize the shared responsibility of the body of Christ to be welcoming, forgiving, and loving community where hospitality, encouragement, transformation, and accountability are available to all. It means that every person is welcome in this church. And the misguided concepts that whenever somebody comes out within a church, the church then looks at it. what do we do with this person? No. They're a person. They are to be with us. And they are called to a different life. Like those of us who are single and straight. They are called to a different life. We have far too much relied upon marriage and family as being the norms in our churches when in reality the church historically has always accepted people of different sexual orientations people who are single wait a minute who was single oh jesus was single and yet we hear within our churches once you hit the ripe age of 20 hey when you get married when you going to date somebody when are you going to be having kids I was married five minutes ago. Relax. Our culture within evangelical churches have leaned so much into this that there was not space for people to receive the calling that God has who may have a different sexual orientation than us. So we need to recognize that temptation is not a sin. Say that with me. Temptation is not a sin. Attraction is not a sin. It's what you do with it. It is when you take your attraction, your sexual attraction, whether you be straight, bi, or gay, and use it for yourself. When you say, it's my body and it's my life and I do what I want with it. When we forget that it is a gift from God that he designed it to be. And instead, we need to be, as a faith community, not shunning people, but welcoming people, no matter what. And we shouldn't be afraid when somebody says, yeah, I'm gay. We shouldn't be afraid of that. Because God can bring about something wonderful in that. Because sexuality isn't just sexual activity as we know it. It's also connection. It's also intimacy. And we'd be amazed to see what would happen if we as a community were closer with each other and journeyed with people who are different than us and leaned into each other's lives instead of just throwing people out. Dan Boone says this, our greatest failure as the church is to imagine that a homosexuality, sorry, a homosexually oriented person can live a celibate life without the benefit of Christian community. We are created for human intimacy and we need human touch, conversation, inclusion, belonging, and care. It is possible to be a celibate person. But it's really hard to be a celibate person if you do not have community and love and support. We have to realize that we as a church are called to give that. There's a book I have in front of me called Washed and Waiting. I read this about two years ago. It's by a guy named Wesley Hill. And I don't know, well, it doesn't matter what I know. What I do know is that this is a book that is a must-read if you are... St- I have no idea how that happened everybody. This is a must read if you are struggling with your sexuality, trying to understand who you are. It's important for if you know exactly who you are to read this. Because you don't realize that a person who is gay and chooses a celibate, faithful life to God, how much burdens others put on them. When in reality, reality, we as a church should not be putting burdens on them but providing connection and love and intimacy in wonderful ways. Read it. I encourage you to read it. It's it's unbelievable. I want to end this entire conversation with some words of Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And I think the thing of it is, is that the Corinthians were very much a Gentile church. They lived these other ways of life. I don't know if you know this or not, but in the Roman Empire, sexuality was pretty free for guys. There's prostitution all the time. There was pedophilia. There's a lot of things that happened within the Roman Empire that was just normal. And all of these folks who are in Corinth come and they experience Jesus and they're called to a new life. And Paul is speaking to them bluntly because, quite frankly, the temptations that they had from their former life of whether or not they were gay or whether they were bisexual or they were doing things and things, maybe they were traumatically abused as children they have all these things and he says to them so frankly these words in first Corinthians chapter six don't you know that people who are unjust won't inherit God's kingdom don't be deceived those who are sexually immoral those who worship false gods adulterers both participants in same-sex intercourse thieves, the greedy, drunks, abusive people, and swindlers won't inherit God's kingdom. Do you see that all of those are in the same sentence? Sexual sin is not more weighty than stealing something, as the church has sometimes done. And it's also as big of a deal as those other things. He says to them, that is what some of you used to be. You all used to do all this. This, You used to be a thief. You used to do these things. But you were washed clean. You were made holy to God and you were made right with God in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. I have the freedom to do anything. But not everything is helpful. I have the freedom to do anything. Anything but I won't be controlled by anything. Food is for the stomach, and stomach is for the food, and yet God will do away with both. The body isn't for sexual morality, but for the Lord. And the Lord is for the body. God raised the Lord and will raise us through His power. Friends, when you accept Christ's grace, you are washed. You are baptized in holy water. You are baptized in the holy spirit. And all desires can be transformed or not acted upon. God gives us the ability to do that. There are plenty of people who have been who have overcome addiction because of God. There are plenty of people who have overcome habits by God in the same way what we do with our bodies need to be given to God and he will work within our lives. And it's costly. Nobody's saying it's not costly. Nobody's saying it's not difficult. Nobody's saying that it's not different than the idea that it's my body, I do what I want with it. But what we receive from God, what we receive from Jesus, think about this for a second. Jesus gave His body so that you and I might have life. Why would we not give our body to God in the life that we are called to live? But may we, though, as the church, recognize That this is a costly life to live, especially that of celibacy. Let's not treat people different because God has called them to that life. Let us not treat people differently because they struggle differently than you do. Let us draw near to each other and love and recognize we're in this together. And that we can live faithfully as washed people by God in holy lives together. We can be holy as our God is holy. May we give our sexuality to God so that it would be holy just as He is holy like everything else in our lives. Thanks for listening to Champion Church of the Nazarene's weekly sermon podcast.